welcome to more to come pw comic world's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing recorded at the pw offices in new york city i'm calvin reed senior news editor <laughs> i keep doing that uh i'm no longer the senior news editor i'm retired but i am the editor of pw comics world and the editor of the fanatic pw's twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics and I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer, and you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And uh, Heidi, our other co-host, is not going to be with us. She's re- she's at the Emerald City Comic Con. And don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Podcast, and on Stitcher, and on social media. We're at facebook.com/pwcomicsworld. And today, I think we may have something a little special as well from Heidi. Hey, I think Heidi will give us a little report later on. Uh, okay, this week on More to Come, Comics Pro is back. Manga Week at ICV2.com, Webtoon News, Anime Streaming News, uh, a new union at Image Comics, uh, Kevin Fahey and the MCU Phase 5, Boom's expansive Kickstarter, and bad data blowback. All right, Comics Pro is back, and that means as an in-person event, uh, it's back. Uh, well, it's not back, but it's this year. It's at uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, it, they had an expansive, uh, so to speak, <laughs> um, uh, event there uh, because this is the first in-person in, in about three years. Uh, there was a lot of excitement. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I think one of the uh, keynotes was given by cartoonist Fayback, the the uh, the podcast by Ed Pisker and and G- Jim Rugg, who were very excited. Their uh, their their talk is on YouTube, um, and of course Ed Pisker is is based it. They're both based in Pittsburgh. Um, but some of the big news I think that came out of it uh, was um, uh, in particular they talked a little bit about Bill Shane's. Who is the longtime uh, Diamond uh, VP, retired over fifty years in the business? He's going to be doing some consulting work now with Only Line Forward. So that was uh, that was some of the news that came out there. Uh, and also speaking of Only Line Forward, Sierra Han uh, has been named the new editor in chief of Only Line Forward. Um, so uh, Oni is seems to still be with us and still trying to to uh, uh to shore up itself after a pretty rough couple of years last couple of years Jen Haynes the the owner and founder of the Dragon uh comic shop in Guelph Ontario she is the comics pro president mm-hmm. and uh she gave an overall like a kind of a look back over the last year of all the things that comics pro has been doing and I should say very quickly for our listeners who may not know comics pro is a national association of independent uh, uh, comic shops. Um, uh, and, uh, I forget exactly how old it is, but really this was, uh, uh, this was a good event to bring together the whole industry. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a retailer event, uh, but there are also publishers there giving presentations. Uh, and, uh, I think this year there were quite a few artists actually on hand. Yeah. If you want to get into the nitty gritty of, um, what people behind the counter in comic stores think, of uh, what sells at your local small town comic shop, at what some guy who has cared about Spider-Man for 50 years thinks about the new stuff, this is the place to go. No, absolutely. 
Um, and uh, Haynes had a, quite a bit uh, to talk about what the uh, organization had been doing over the past year. Um, uh, obviously, distribution was a big topic. Uh, and I think all of the new major distributions were, distributors were there, including Penguin Random House, obviously Diamond, uh, Lunar, and what's the other one? I believe Universal. Uh, I'll have to check on mm. that. Um, uh, but they've been meeting there. Uh, the big topic of discussion, of course, is the fragmentation of, of distribution into the direct market. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and I should be clear also that Comics Pro really is a focus on the direct market. Uh, it's not, these are not necessarily independent bookstores, uh, but they're definitely local comic shops. Yeah. Um, so they tried to cover the fragmentation of the, of an industry, really retailers getting used to having more than one distributor. I mean, Diamond yeah. has dominated the industry for many, many years, but really now we're seeing, uh, really since pandemic and, and many of the things that took place, uh, during the pandemic, um, with distribution, that uh retailers now have a just a more options they have more options but also um because a lot of them have gone exclusive with different distributors they have to reach out to a wider variety of channels in order to get the same stuff so on one hand like market forces you know great for prices and great for you know keeping distributors from getting complacent but it isn't necessarily a convenient one-stop shop anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, among the things, uh, that were, uh, they were talking about, uh, let's see, uh, shipping, uh, and particularly shipping at, uh, Diamond, uh, lowering the cost of shipping. Uh, that's, seems to be a perennial, uh, sore point for retailers. The cost of getting their, uh, their, their inventory shipped to the stores, particularly since Excuse me. Particularly since um, the entry of Penguin Random House Publisher Services into the direct market, uh, offering free shipping yeah. on all orders. Um, let's see. Uh, so that was a big uh, issue. And as always, data uh, on sales um, always an issue in the direct market and in the comics industry in general. Getting good data. Uh, and then particularly, uh, with the rise of BookScan and its importance to the independent bookstore market, uh, the importance of point of sale, uh, data, uh, something that is available to some extent, but not, uh, the way we, the way BookScan operates. Yeah. In the, and, in uh, this will trade. become relevant later in this program. Yes, it is. We'll reveal it. We'll revisit data, uh, of another sort later on. Um, there was also, obviously, uh, retailers were talking about, uh, you know, sales, the continuing rise of sales, uh, or, or I should say, um, the, the, the influx of new readers, the increase in sales, but also the impact of the, you know, the partial coming out of the pandemic, dealing with a new reading universe now as people are able to leave their homes uh and uh sales have kind of leveled off from a mm -hmm. bit but are still above pre-pandemic levels so retailers were talking about what they're doing um and i think a lot of what the retailers uh um were talking about and i should also give credit to icb2 um and to the beat for a lot of the reports we're talking about right here, yeah. right now, uh, a, a, a lot of the level leveling off in sales in the book trade as well. 
uh, it really has to do with retailers being cautious, um, uh, worried about uh, you know, retailers being careful about their uh, their consume. Excuse me, consumers being careful about their budgets uh, now that they have a wider, more options uh, to consume pop culture. So there are there is some uh, leveling off of sales, but still uh, sales coming in at a high level. And it's it's not just you know inflation or people having something else to do with their time. It's also the supply chain issues have not only made it harder sometimes to get the things you want, but harder to predict the market ahead by the time you get the items. Um, Funko Pop, the company that makes Funko Pop. Um, had a little news announcement, which they tried to slip under the radar, but, you know, savvy journalists picked up on it, that they're actually um, having to destroy a uh, chunk of their merchandise, which they don't think it's going to be cost-effective to sell. And reading between the lines, people think this means that uh, they have some Funkos that might be outdated by now, that might not be the hot new thing. And if you try to figure out why that happened... It may have something to do with what was hot when they were ordered and what was hot by the time the Funkos arrived in the warehouse. You know, I mean, yes. with that kind of ordering problems affecting books, affecting merchandise, like, I can see that everyone, everywhere along the line, from the publishers to the shop owners, um, is going to be a little careful. Yeah, yes. Without a doubt, though, I think when we get to our our manga week story, I think we'll find that some of the supply chain issues are they're getting better. They're getting but, better, but but the that, fact of the matter is, yeah. it's a whole year. So these numbers cover an entire year, yes. during which part some of it was actually having the active supply chain issues. But even if the supply chain is better now, the side effects of it are still with us, yes. as witness, you know, people having too much of the wrong thing on their hands of maybe being more cautious buying because of that because they're afraid it might come back like the the repercussions may stick around a little longer than the actual supply chain problems yes but the, the, the but it should be said that the overall mood uh as reported by uh, both the comics uh about the beat and at the icv2 were that the uh, spirits were high. There was yeah. a lot of optimism in the industry. Yeah. Uh, it was it was kind of a slightly cautious optimism. It mm-hmm. was like, hey, this is good. Um, we're not predicting boom times forever, but it's good. Yeah, and 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 really, I think just the ability to be in the same room, uh, yeah. to uh, to network, to you know, give me this is a community, and to be able to see people, to see retailers face to face and talk, uh, that was a big part of the uh, uh, of the excitement of this year's Comics Pro. Uh, there were also presentations, um, among them, and certainly one that stood out, uh, at least for me, just from looking at all of the coverage, was, uh, Saturday AM, this new, uh, uh, manga influence war, and it's really, it's a manga company, um, based in North America, obviously, um, they're a digital first mm-hmm. thing, but they, you know, they, uh, but their work is really aimed at the A manga marketplace. So what excites you about it? Uh they they I think they they've already announced this deal that they have a deal with Quarto to release print. But what's exciting about it is a it's deal with really what to focused, release prints? Hmm? 
a deal with what to release print? Uh, Quarto. Quarto. To, yes, Quarto. Uh, it's like a, a UK publisher and distributor. And mm-hmm. they will be, uh, since it's a digital publisher, essentially, they have signed a deal with them to, they control editorial. Quarto will do the printing and the distribution. And they just talked about, uh, their focus on creating diverse manga for a, well, really for a global audience. Though, uh, and indeed they're looking for manga from around the world. They bring creators in from around the world. Though they're here based in North America. So what caught your eye about them as opposed to well, all the other similar They're, they're very out new. There? They, um, we've talked about them on the podcast before. Um, I've read a, I've, I've read a bit of, of some of their books and, uh, you know, this one clock striker. Uh, which is very, I think they've got a, you know, I, I, I have to have the, I'd have to look up the, the artist's name, but it's a very striking manga that's, um, it, that has a, a black female lead, uh, I, I, and, and that they really, they really make this a, a, a marketing point, uh, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, a very genuine one in how they're in their books. So something that, something to look for, uh, I watched their presentation that was on YouTube. Mm-hmm. From Comics Pro, and it's 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 well it's you know it's uh but they and it's not just you know uh you know ethnicity really they really talk quite a bit about creating characters of different body types you know for the LGBTQ community uh they've apparently also signed they also have some possible anime adaptations coming in the future so they're on the move yeah so that's it Comics Pro uh is back in person in Pittsburgh this year so. Okay, now segueing to uh, a uh, ICV2's Manga Week, uh, uh, they put together kind of a full package, and they do this on an annual basis about the the rise of manga, and a lot of the discussion is really about the continuing strong sales of manga. Although, uh, in an interview with Kevin Hambrick, who is the uh, I think he's a VP of of marketing and sales at Viz Media, uh, sales are down a little uh, in twenty in twenty twenty two. But still well above pre-pandemic levels. Um, uh, Kevin talked quite a bit about, um, uh, um, seeing the rise of sales actually in independent bookstores and in the direct market. Um, and just bringing in, continuing to bring in new readers. Um, and, uh, also there is some discussion of the supply chain supply chain problems easing up just a bit that they are being able to fill reprint orders a little bit better than they were. Uh, and it was another, uh, kind of, uh, full interview with Mark DeVera from Yen Press, uh, who talked a bit about, um, their focus being a little bit more on, uh, outside of the action adventure categories that Viz obviously does so well in particularly works aimed at young women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and DeVera also talked quite a bit about supply chains improving over time. So, yeah, and then in Yen Press, I mean, um, uh, and, and I, I would direct you to go to ICV2 because there is quite a bit of coverage there. Uh, okay, so anime streaming news. So that's not all the anime news that's out there. You know, just as sales have been pretty good. Things have also been a good time for anime and also for anime streaming services, one of which is High Dive. Yes, High Dive, the um, second or third 
anime streaming service of the USA behind Crunchyroll and arguably Amazon is um, High Dive Dash Sentai, same company, um, has made a deal with Japan's Minichi Broadcasting System, aka MBS, which is one of the big studios making anime. Um, they are going to be making a huge deal, Sentai's biggest ever deal for anime content. And this is MBS's entire programming slate. Um, so they, these are going to include the most heretical last boss queen from villainous to savior, um, Endo and Kobayashi Live, the latest sundari vin- villainous, and uh, various other similar popular titles. So Crunchyroll costs considerably more than High Dive. High Dive costs a total of $5 a month. And, you know, they're hoping to elevate High Dive's reputation and interest with fans by getting some new exclusives in there. Um, so, you know, good luck to High Dive. Disclosure, dear listeners, yes, I am that dork who currently subscribes to High Dive and not Crunchyroll. Eventually I'll switch back when Crunchyroll has something I want to watch. But, you know, right now I'm watching your boy Kong Ming. So clearly, clearly I know what I need to subscribe to. And I should say also that the um, uh, uh, Kevin Hamburg also talked about how anime continues to drive sales. Uh, yeah. You know, of their of their titles. Yeah, and... So, on a possibly related note, um, there are probably a lot of English-speaking voice actors who will be glad that these series are being picked up by Sentai High Dive as opposed to Crunchyroll because there have been some complaints in the news from English-speaking anime voice actors. So... They've been trying to have a union dive, uh, trying to have a union drive with Crunchyroll to, you know, unionize the voice actors, and uh, Crunchyroll's not having it. You know, it, it was led by Kyle McCarley, a experienced voice actor who has the leading role in uh, Mob Psycho 100, and um, they were hoping that they would be able to unionize with SAG-AFTRA, but, um, you know, Crunchyroll hasn't been up for it. And there's been a history of uh, anime voice actors in the United States being ascended fans, so maybe not necessarily being experienced with agents, being experienced with union contracts. And so, you know, as we've seen this push lately to bring unions to places unions have not been before. Um, anime voice acting is the next frontier, and Crunchyroll's not having it. All right. Okay, moving on to our next... Uh, and related topic. <clears throat> yes, uh, we've got another union topic here. Uh, we do indeed, and much happier one. Yes. Uh, the Comic Book Workers United, the, uh, the union that was formed uh, over the past year, at Image Comics, um, announced that they have, uh, 
ratified the contract. So the Common Book Workers Union will, will represent the, um, the uh, CBA there, the collective bargaining group. And, uh, the, uh, the rat- ratification comes, uh, and this is from the story on ICB2. Uh, the ratification vote comes a year after Imistas, uh, voted to be represented by the CBWU. Uh, that makes Image, uh, what the very first comics, the first North American comics published to vote to unify, uh, to, to unionize. Redo that sentence. Uh, it makes Image Comics the first North American comics publisher to vote to unionize. Uh, and we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, because Seven Seas, uh, entertainment, uh, uh, volunteered, the management volunteered to recognize, uh, the United Workers of Seven Seas. Um, so there is another union at an American, at a North American comics publisher, um, likely to ratify a contract in the near future yeah so we'll see where this trend goes hopefully somewhere good yeah and i should say this follows the very recent ending of the strike at harper collins mm-hmm. uh with a um a very lengthy strike uh where the union uh finally got a rat ratified a contract very recently so so congratulations to the employees there and we'll Hopefully, and there'll be and we can buy Harper Collins books again. Yes, and hopefully there'll be more to come on unionization and publishing to come. All right. So the MCU Phase Five. So, <laughs> listeners, you uh, you may have seen a certain Saturday Night Live skit about too many Marvel movies. You you may have heard a conversation on this podcast about too much MCU content even for people who like MCU well it seems like Kevin Feige has heard you so um, Kevin Feige has uh, revealed their plans for phase 5 I mean I'm not surprised it's coming out now because DC made a big deal about their new slate about their new program got a lot of excitement Mm -hmm doesn't surprise me that the MCU is trying to get their thing. So get in on that. So um, Kevin Feige had an interview with Entertainment Weekly and he said that running the MCU has taken up nearly half of his life, (laughs) which is quite remarkable. 23 years, something not quite, but almost. (laughs) Almost, (laughs) almost, because I mean, it came on our radar that, our radar when we were actually watching them. Um, but of course, the lifespan of a movie is much longer than yes. just hitting the film screen. So they said, let's see, what was this quote? Um, says, I do think that one of the powerful aspects of being at Marvel Studios is having these films and shows hit the zeitgeist. It is harder to hit the zeitgeist when there's so much product out there and so much content, as they say, which is a word that I hate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's explained, 31 films, by the way. Yeah, explained that uh, as they move into phase five and six, they are going to slow the pace at which these items come out, which which is in line with things that uh, came out when Disney did their restructuring. That you know, there was maybe some thought that maybe having fewer MCU products at a time 
might make the individual ones more popular. Hmm. So, you know, you have it. I, I personally, I won't miss it because I like, I like the MCU largely, hmm. not all of it, but you know, if if it's not your primary hobby, it can be a little hard to keep track of. <laughs> well, it's pretty easy to become your primary hobby if you really follow all the films. Uh, yeah. Uh, and TV and shows. all the TV shows. Yeah. And all the cartoons. Yeah. And if you have any time left in your day, read the comics. I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, he says he's going to, they're going to space them out, but at the end of the day, it's still a lot of con- content, that word he hates, but. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it makes sense because yeah. they announce a bunch of stuff, but. I mean, any studio announces plenty of things that never come to fruition. And if you space it out more, I mean, it really matters how many happen in any one given year. So if you're coming out with, say, two movies a year and one TV show a year, that is a much more manageable amount of screen time than, like, what, three Three TV shows a year? I feel like it's three TV shows a year and three movies mm-hmm. a year, which is a lot. It's a lot. So yeah. uh, I think this might be a happy medium. And I feel like there might be some diminishing returns as see the um, lack of box office for the latest Ant-Man movie. You know, I mean. Right. Which he talks quite a bit about in this in this interview. Yeah. But and it's very interesting because uh, I, I do think it's interesting because he talks about how do you do how do you, how do you tell stories for the hardcore nerds you know as he say, as he puts it the, the, the people that love the homework you know like figure out who the characters well, start where they are you know learn well, figure how they've been treated well I will say hiring people who actually read the comics might be a good idea because <laughs> because they recently they yes. there was some word getting out from Marvel that they were specifically trying to pick filmmakers and screenwriters who didn't read Marvel comics which I mean if you're making movies about Marvel comics can be a double edged sword well he he talks about balancing hardcore nerds against finding new audiences he feels like oh you don't have to do that homework uh, you know to to enjoy the films right but of course many people do enjoy the homework yeah no it, it, (laughs) it quite frankly you shouldn't have a repeat of the Harry Potter movies where the movies literally made no sense to people who hadn't read the books, as I found out when I watched a Harry Potter movie with my parents, who were very, very confused. Hmm. Um, you know, it's like the first Iron Man movie both was satisfying to the hardcore fans and to people who had no idea who Tony Stark was. Um, you know, you can, you can hit that sweet spot. Hmm. But... You don't hit that sweet spot by deciding that people who read the comics have nerd cooties. <laughs> All right, but uh, we, we, we'll we'll point you toward you know the the uh, you know uh, Entertainment Weekly and a very extensive interview. Yeah, there's a lot more that we can cover. Yeah. We're not going to do a whole podcast covering every single thing that Kevin Feige said in an article. You can just read yourself. Let's see. Next on the list. Um... All right, Boom has launched, and I think it's still going on, uh, a, a Kickstarter campaign to uh, fund, I think it's like a 12-issue miniseries of an adaptation of, of the Expanse Dragon Tooth 
that has no, it's raised. Not, it's not an adaptation of the Expanse Dragon Tooth. No, okay. it's the Expanse. Okay. Oh no, it's, it's a. It's excuse me. You're right. In my bad. It, it's yeah. So their Kickstarter campaign is for the Expanse Dragon Tooth, which is a uh, comic book sort of adaptation dash sequel to the Expanse, the television series. Mm. Yeah, and it has raised over a million dollars. I think it's one point one million dollars at last um, at the last time we checked uh, for this kind of extra season. It may actually surpass um, Keanu Reeves's Berserker, um, which also was a boom product, and we'll see. But good luck to them. But yeah. this is only part of Boom's, you know, expanded slate. Because they went a little bit dormant lately. They hadn't been bringing out quite as much stuff. But uh, they seem to be back with a vengeance, especially with the help of crowdfunding. There's, you know, obviously there's going to be more Berserker titles. Surprise, surprise. Um, I think they're, all, they're also offering uh, some uh, increasing their returnability of uh, mm-hmm. for retailers. Uh, and I think that they're looking also at trying to uh, lower some of the shipping rates. Yeah. And um, they're also announcing, quote-unquote, The Pitch with Boom, an exclusive monthly retailer roundtable experience with special guests and exclusive announcements. So basically Boom is doing like a PR podcast just for retailers it seems like. Good for them. Yeah. Hey, whatever gets people buying your books because Boom does come out with some great stuff. Yeah. All right. Always happy to see them doing well. All right. So, um all right. So, I guess uh, uh, uh we can't put this off any longer. Uh, bad data blowback. Uh, but in this, the first one we're going to talk about, it's sad to say, mm. uh, uh, it, it's, you can't be alive and not have heard anything about this in the last week. And that's the, um, uh, the emotions, the reactions, uh, the response to, uh, Dilbert creator Scott Adams. You know, absurd, uh, rant on YouTube. I mean, I don't consider myself an expert on Scott Adams. Um, a mildly, uh, in, in, a mildly amusing, uh, but nevertheless wildly popular, or at least at one point, wildly popular comic strip. Dilbert. Uh, Dilbert. And. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and, so, well, so. he obviously, um, it seems to me he got the reaction he want with a, an absurd and racist rant. Uh, but this seems to be his MO. Uh, and, uh, he, he, he seems to love to be a figure, uh, that stirs the pot in this way, including, and, and, and he's, if he wanted a, a, a reaction, he certainly got it with the cancellation of pretty much every publishing contract that he has. Well, I mean, yeah, and that puts the point of this is not his regular MO. This is a huge escalation of his regular well, MO. Well, it's a huge escalation of his regular right, MO. Right, yeah. right, So, So <laughs> let me give you a little background on Scott Adams. Most comic strip creators are off doing their own thing, don't show up in the papers a lot, and 
don't show up in the internet gossip column as it would as it were but scott adams long before he became as openly political has been an eccentric character um he has a dilbert shaped house he has had a number of failed dilbert based business including the dilberito um and he's never been shy about going out on a limb and sharing his opinion of the world he he does seem to be a comic creator who deep in his heart wants to be a pundit but he definitely didn't want dilbert to get canceled because he seems pretty upset about it um he lost his contract with andrew Mc, andrews mcmeal he lost his his uh contract with pretty much every newspaper yes um he but, claims he expected this well yeah but he's he's still upset so i i think this may be a case of audience capture so audience capture is when um a feedback loop happens between a creator and their audience where if a creator is already a little extreme their audience are people who want things to be extreme and so if that becomes his bubble of his like most hardcore fans egging him on he may be more become more extreme to please them and i think he may have just been stuck in his echo chamber so long that he literally came out and literally said that white people should stop associating with black people because all black people are racist against white people based on this stupid poll it's an incredibly stupid that poll that is completely ridiculous nobody that even he says it sounded weird and wonder why yeah it was it was kind of what you might call a troll poll it no, had one completely. of those questions that even i would say a conservative white person might look at that question and go that's phrased odd why is this person asking me this one of the question was is it okay to be white and they asked a bunch of people of a variety of races do you think do you agree with this statement it's okay to be white and it's like you hear that and you have to wonder why is this person asking me this so there's a reason that people i think were a little cautious to say sure to that i don't think it's because they hated white people i mean it's such a ridiculous question uh the ability to sort out what a, what's a goof answer what's a perplexed answer and what's a, an answer that you know he's like you know what i'm not okay with this white person who's asking me this i'll tell you yeah. that much uh, so th- to to take that as the basis to go off on uh, a segregationist rant, a bizarre, a, a, you know, racism at its most bizarrely like, you know, it, there, there's hard to even find a logic in it. Uh, it, it it's hard capture. to know how to respond. I I really think I really think it's just you know he as he got more extreme over the years, but not this blatantly racist. He started accumulating more obs- extreme fans, and I think he cooked his own brain with the internet. That's all I can think. Yeah. Maybe he's trying to pivot into uh, a Fox News talk show. I don't know. Well, you know, I'm sure they're ready to hire him right now. Uh, and, you know, so all of his deals have been canceled, or so it seems. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, somebody will publish him. Yeah, but you know. but the thing is, this is not someone who had nothing. Yes, right? no, he, he, this is not somebody who, no. who has been dropped by one regular book publisher to be picked up by another regular book publisher. Like, 
There are very few successful syndicated newspaper cartoons anymore, and he had one of them. Yeah. Um, he was carried in pretty much every comic strip section of a newspaper that has a comic strip section. And he's not gonna get that back. Or anything close to it in sales or, or reputation. I mean, this is, you know, sometimes when people say someone's canceled, I'm like, mm, I don't know, man. But this sounds like this is about as close to being canceled as you can get. Like you're not, you're not going to get those newspaper jobs back. Yeah, you know, he's not going to get those back. But you, somebody will publish his stuff. Well, it'll, it'll sell. People will buy it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People I mean, have, it's, it won't vanish from the culture yeah. entirely. Yeah. But it's so, uh, he's not going to get back to the heights he is. On yeah. the other hand, this is a man who can afford to have a Dilbert-shaped house with a Dilbert-shaped swimming yeah. pool. So. I'm I'm not crying for him financially. It's just it's not a good business decision on his part. There you go. Uh now on the other side of bad data in this in this sense, uh uh a reporter who's pointing out how data can be manipulated using uh, comics. Using comics uh and 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 actually seems to intersect with the uh the weird fox generated audience for Scott Adams. Um uh a, a comic about a bisexual, what, son of Superman, right? The yeah. son of Kal-El. Um, came out, what, about a year ago or yeah. so? It was, it was canceled, I think, at the end well, of the it was, year. Well, it was always kind of, yeah. I mean, if you have a book that calls John Kent Superman, yeah. as opposed to Clark Kent Superman, yeah. you know this book is a limited series. You're right. Um, so unsurprisingly, uh, the book lasted a year before being replaced by another book also starring John Kent, yeah. which to anyone who knows superhero comics is not so much a cancellation as a reboot, yes. but, um, and one, everyone saw a comic coming because I mean, obviously Clark Kent is Superman. We knew it was going to go back to that. Yes. Everyone knew it was going to go back to that, but because of said cancellation, uh, diehard culture warriors used this as an excuse to say, see, see, go woke, go broke. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, video, the informative video piece from the Washington Post, um, what, what was the name of the series yes, well, it was a, part it, of? Yeah, it said, it's from the Washington Post TikTok uh, account, but it was put together, uh, it was a segment put together by Chris Vasquez, who is uh he's a reporter, a data reporter at the Washington Post. And, it was and he part has of a yes, he has a TikTok series he calls Variant Cover. Mm-hmm. And and uh he's a data reporter and he basically wanted to look at the the data that was being used to claim that uh, that uh, Son of Kellel had bad sales. Yeah. And basically it's a very amusing uh and at the same time very uh well reported deep dive into both the sales numbers in the comics industries and all of their flaws. And we should add, like, there is a cameo appearance by our co-host, Heidi McDonald, uh, in this TikTok video. As the expert. Yes, the expert, uh, as she is. And, and a very amusing, and as I said before, a well-reported journey through how numbers can be manipulated. Yeah, so... It, also about what red flags can let you know yes. that numbers mm-hmm. are probably being manipulated. So the things that were giant red flags for him and started this piece off to begin with was the fact that it was using old data mm-hmm. and that there was more speculation 
about what this meant in the present as opposed to any attempt to get any current numbers. And, you know, he tracked their sales on Amazon. He consulted with the statistics person for the Washington Post. And he made a pretty convincing case for the fact that, A, their conclusions from this data don't seem very reliable. And B, comic book sales don't have very good data. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also he's kind of, he pointed out that the character of John Kidd is actually showing up in a number of other series that are really quite popular. Yeah. And that if you can turn four out of yeah. DC's top 10 comics, star John Kent yeah. as one of the characters. So, and I thought your comments at the beginning of, the, of our little segment here was very interesting that, you know, when you, you know, you call somebody John Kent Superman, you know that, well, Something else is going to happen with this character. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's one of those those bait and switch tricks that occasionally Marvel and DC will pull when they have a character who is related to a major character. Nobody really thought that Clark Kent's bisexual son was going to be the most important Superman. Now, come on, who are you fooling? But uh, if you've if you've got a TikTok account or you or you you've been thinking about one, go take a look at the Washington Post TikTok account and look for Chris Vasquez and variant cover. And you don't even need a TikTok account; no. you can just use Google. Yeah, just use Google, and you'll get the segment. It's 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 very funny and very smart too. All right. So, uh, news briefs. It is time for briefs, and I believe you have a brief before I, I get to indeed. mine. Um. Uh, a bunch of, of UK comics festivals in collaboration with VIP brands, which uh, is run by a friend of the show, uh, Ivanka Hanenberger, have teamed up and they announced the launch of the Sophie Castile Awards for Comics and Translations. This is uh, this award is being uh, started in honor of the memory of Castile, who died uh, unexpectedly and tragic tragically in 2022. Uh, I I knew Sophie. Uh, she is the the is the founder of Europe Comics, uh, which you know also actually shut down this year, but was a was a key element in over the last few years in in helping to bring European graphic novels in translation into North America and other places around the world. Um, it, uh, the award uh, will be the inaugural award will be presented at the Lakes International Festival in. And what Boundless on Windermere, I, I may be mangling my, uh, the pronunciation, so my apologies, in the fall of 2023. Uh, in fact, this is a collaboration, as I said, between VIP brands, uh, uh, the, the Comica Festival and the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. Uh, so, um, uh, 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 the award will be presented to the best translation of graphic novels in a variety of languages around the world, and the inaugural award will be for the best translation of a non-English graphic novel into English. So, and the uh, the the judges for the Sophie Castile Comics Translation Awards for this year will be Karen Green, curator for comics and cartoons at Columbia University's Rare Book and Manuscript. Uh, library, uh, Charlie Adlar, the, uh, Walking Dead, I guess best known uh, among other things for Walking Dead, his work on Walking Dead, and Peter Gessler, chair of the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. Um, there you go. Uh, on a less cheerful note, um, the mangaka great 
Leiji Matsumoto, the uh, man behind Space Battleship Yamato, between Captain Harlock, between Galaxy Express 999, Queen Esmeraldas, and many more, um, has died on February 13th of this year at the age of 85. I mean, he's really one of the early manga greats. And, and earlier than you would think, given his age, he started as a mangaka at the age of 15 and has been steadily producing ever since. Um, 1953 was his first manga. Um, a uh, contest winner for Manga Shonen called Adventures of a Honeybee. And he, he just kept going. So he's brought out a lot of, a lot of comics, um, that turned into, you know, very classic anime. And, you know, just legendary characters that will outlive him. And, um, this is, this is really the equivalent to, to throw me one of the greats of, of American comics who you'd say would be equivalent, Calvin. Uh, Will Eisner. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the, you know, someone who did really kind of transform comics. Yeah, from the really early days. Mm-hmm. I mean, his influences were not manga. Mm-hmm. His influences were very early American animation. Um, that's how early he was. So, I mean, he's going to be missed. It's definitely the end of an era. I think he's possibly the last of that artistic generation still creating. Yeah. And he was creating up until very recently. So, you know, hats off to to a truly great creator yeah. whose works many people have enjoyed, including myself. Um, so he will not be replaced by an AI anytime soon <laughs> because yes. um, people have been speculating on whether or not AI is going to replace animators, and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon because um, a studio has just created what's possibly the first animated film of any length using AI. So Corridor Digital created Rock, Paper, Scissors, a seven-minute animated film, um, which is the tale of two princes battling for the throne. But it was sort of AI rotoscoped. They had two actors acted out and then had the AI turn it into animation. But um, the quality is low, hmm. is very low at the moment. Uh, animators have been having a good time on Twitter, having their laughs. Can't blame them. Um, <laughs> hopefully, we won't someday wake up and, and find that they've They've reached studio quality, but at the moment, doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon. I mean, I, I don't, I don't blame the studio for, you know, just doing this as an experiment. I think it's a fun experiment, but, um, yeah, it looks like AI is not there yet when it comes to moving images. So our last piece of news is, is also about something an AI is helping with, but, but something I think that we're maybe a little more on board with. So Singapore has announced and opened, in fact, their first ever manga-only library. So they have opened a sort of mini-library inside uh, Singapore's City Square Mall, which is filled entirely with manga and with Singaporean comics, which people can check out with their library card. But instead of a real librarian, they have a robot 
concierge librarian who is a robot who is made to look like a uh, favorite uh, Singaporean animation character and who is, I guess, programmed to talk to the customers. I, I see, I've seen a little picture of his little grinning just, anime looking robot thing and, you know. It seems like a, a manga come to life. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how, how, um, you know, a future loving manga enthusiast yeah. will have a great time, but also, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, a great location because where do teenagers like to go? The mall. Yeah. Um, and if you can't afford to buy that manga, well, don't worry. You've got a library card. So, you know, I mean, frankly, not going to lie, uh, I kind of wish that City Point in Brooklyn maybe had a manga-only lending library. I'd probably check it out on my way home from work. So, you know, more on that, maybe. Right. So, uh, as we said at the top of the show, Heidi is currently covering Emerald City Comic Con, and so she has brought us a remote report. Hi, Heidi McDonald here, uh, editor-in-chief of ComicsBeat.com, uh, calling in from Seattle. I'm here for Emerald City Comic Con. Sorry, I wasn't able to join Kate and Calvin, but what an informative podcast it was. So I've been here for the last three days and about to depart. Uh, not a lot of overt news, uh, but the big news really is just that the show has moved to the new convention center. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful convention centers I've ever seen. It was started about six years ago, uh, kind of pandemic halted, but it has opened. This is the first large consumer show that's been held at the convention center. And, you know, everyone arrived on Wednesday, Thursday was like, oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, within a couple of days, we learned that it was a brand new building that hadn't gotten all of its amenities in um, place. I mean, for instance, you know, I always talk about food. There's no food. There was a small pie cart in the back of Artist Alley, and there's a bar on the fifth floor, but there's for a large event that probably has 80,000 people, uh, not, no food in the conventions that are no coffee. Um, luckily there's coffee everywhere in Seattle. That's important for me. Um, news wise, like I said, I don't, I don't think there's been a lot, really just a lot of people getting together, uh, and still hearing about Comics Pro. Um, uh, we'll talk to a lot of people who are there. Uh, you, you know, a lot of things happened at the Comics Pro meeting, uh, with the fact that Diamond Books, or, or Diamond Comics, Penguin Random House, Lunar, and Universal, the four distributors were all there in the same room, really for the first time. I understand there were a lot of summit meetings, there was a lot of talk of, uh, some really big issues, including one of our favorites, Metadata. Uh, there was a panel on Metadata, but I do understand that there's it's a little too complicated to go into right now, especially in the, you can hear the shape my voice is in, but, um, uh, a lot of stuff happened at Comics Pro. I'm, I'm still hoping to learn more and, uh, talk about it. But, you know, basically, I think what's really interesting about this show is that it's in Seattle, which is absolutely a n lot of nerds in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was a very, very, it was very crowded yesterday, Saturday. Um, a lot of, anime-influenced costumes, a lot of people into anime, not a big anime manga presence at the show, uh, as noted by my roommate, Deb Aoki, friend of the podcast, but uh, that's partly because SakuraCon, the biggest anime show in the Pacific Northwest, is in just three weeks, so um, that's a little understandable, but 
uh, really just this area has undergone a lot of distress during the pandemic. You know, the downtown is a ghost town, um, a lot of empty storefronts. So it, it's kind of like coming back to the city that has changed quite a bit. And there's a lot of questions about uh, whether the fan, you know, whether fans will be there, whether they'll be spending money. Now, based on what I've seen, yes, uh, there was a lot of people here yesterday. It was very crowded. In fact, the escalators did not stand up to the stress test. And, um, uh, you know, we learned a lot about the new facility. Uh, but I, I would say, overall, a lot of plans for Emerald City Comic Con. I think that Reed Pop, which throws the show, is very, very bullish on this show. They're actually hoping that they will be able to expand to the old convention center next year and have one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Comic Cons on the West Coast. Um, not a lot of comics publishers here, even though it is called Emerald City Comic Con. In fact, I don't think there's any except maybe Zenoscope, Mad Cave. Uh, there's a booth that's selling some first, second books. Uh, Bulgahan Press and Shortbox are here, a kind of a mini, um, you know, small press, uh, indie publishers. And, uh, a large artist alley. But yeah, no real large comics publishing, uh, present. Uh, yeah, but isn't that through the, uh, Deb Aoki just threw in that at first second here, but isn't that the reading, you know, that reading booth that they do? Is it actually a Macmillan booth? Oh, okay. She says yes. All right. Well, I'm surprised. You know what? I haven't been over there to see. So I'm going to go check it out. Uh, I've been in meetings for three days. So, uh, that's kind of the scene here at Emerald City. Uh, definitely have more to say next time we're all sitting around and, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely great seafood here and, uh, pretty chilly. But uh, that's it. As always, there will be more to come. Oh, great. So, great, Heidi. Thanks. Uh, as usual, uh, a great report. There we go. Well, uh, and indeed, uh, I think that wraps us up for today or this evening. And, um, yeah, there will be more to come. Say something oh. in response to it. Whatever. Well, I'm rambling, so that, there you go. There was no Heidi here to cut you off. All right. Be sure you edit this well, oh, really sure. well.